We are tuned in to This Week in Moab on KZMU Community Radio. I'm your host this evening, Molly Marcello. Today we are speaking with two executive directors of nonprofits that do a lot in our community. In the past year, both have uh, experienced an increase in demand for their services. Seekhaven Family Crisis and Resource Center assists survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault in rebuilding their lives. They provide a wide range of essential services for this region, including client advocacy, emergency shelter, and transition assistance. They believe that everyone has the right to feel safe, secure, and supported. We're going to speak with Executive Director Abigail Taylor about Seekhaven's work and their 30th anniversary, uh, which they are celebrating uh, this year, um, also with a unique fundraising campaign. Later in the program, we're going to hear from Rihanna Medina of the Moab Valley Multicultural Center, which also does a lot in our community, from crisis resource and advocacy to language and life skills support, cultural outreach, That conversation with Rihanna is coming up at about 5.30. But first, our interview with Abigail Taylor at Seekhaven, which was pre-recorded just a few days ago. Abby starts off with some history of the organization, uh, which was, again, founded 30 years ago in in Moab. Seekhaven opened our doors in October of 1990. So there are three main people that uh, opened Sea Caven from the beginning. Jan Barnett was the director of the Housing Authority in Grand County, and she led the effort to open up a new shelter. Uh, Nancy Bentley was from Price. She and Jan wrote the original grant under the Housing Authority, okay. and their focus was to bring domestic violence services to the area. And then Stephanie Dahlstrom was hired as our uh, first counselor. And there's also a VISTA volunteer named Robin Parker. So three, three employees, one volunteer. Nowadays, we have 19 full, full-time benefited positions. So the, the, the change there is, is drastic um, over the, the 30 years. Um, Stephanie Dahlstrom has been involved with Seacaven on and off for, for years now. She eventually became the um, executive director. Um, and when I actually started working at Sea Caven, she was our board president. And wow. she finally took some, took a break from Sea Caven a couple of years ago, but she's still a great support to me um, when I, when I need someone to, to give me a listening ear or just some moral support. Abby, how long have you been with Sea Caven and, and what roles have you served the organization? I started in 2017 um, and I started out as the director of programs. So a lot of administrative stuff, but seeing everybody as they came in the doors, answering phones, that was really that first face that many people saw as they came into access services. Um, and we, at that time, we applied for a lot of grant funding and, and started to grow uh, very quickly. So in order to build capacity, we developed a deputy executive director position, which I took in, in 2019. And then about a year ago, our executive director um, was, was leaving and I took over for her. So three positions in four years. So Seekhaven does a lot of stuff with those 19 full-time positions. Can you mm-hmm. tell us, you know, I think people know 
Um, Sea Haven as a shelter for survivors Mm -hmm. of domestic violence, but I know there is so much more going on too. Can you talk about the organization as a whole and where you're focused? Yeah, definitely. Our our unofficial slogan there for a while was, we're more than just a shelter. Um, So you hit that on the nose. Providing emergency Uh shelter is one of the most important things that we do, but um, it's really just a start. In addition to that, we have outreach advocacy services. So that's um, those are available to anybody, regardless of, of where they're living, um, whether they have a safe home or not. Um, so advocacy services can be um, just providing that extra support to somebody as they, um, you know, f- fill out housing applications or uh, need someone to go to court with them or going to doctor's appointments, getting hooked up with a, with a contracted counselor through C-Cave-In. Um, it, it, it's different for everybody, um, our, our advocacy services. Um, we also have a, a specific housing program. So we have two different grants that can provide housing assistance. So either rent or utilities. Um, we have a financial literacy course as well. Um, that provides education to um, our clients. You know, it dives into you know credit repair and how to build your credit, but also what do loans look like? What it, what you know basic budgeting skills, things like that. We have support group called Seeking Safety, and that one's really well known and appreciated. Contract counseling is probably one of the biggest things that we do. We have um, a few counselors that we work with, and they just send their invoices straight to us and. Clients, the clients don't have to pay a dime to receive um, mental health services. Those are the main ones, um, but really everybody looks different. You know, everybody's needs are different. Everybody's trauma and the experiences are, are very different. So we just kind of mold to what they need and, and provide, um, you know, what we can in-house and make referrals to, to other services outside of our agency. I know Seekhaven has also done a lot of work around trauma education, especially for other organizations um, that might encounter people in trauma, like law enforcement, for example. Yeah, definitely. A a big component of what Seekhaven does is provide education to um, our community partners and to, to other agencies, other first responders that may intercept acute victims of domestic violence or sexual assault. We hope to develop and and support multidisciplinary teams and responses to these issues um, because CKVN oftentimes we aren't the first responder, but what we can do is help encourage our community to respond to these situations to a certain standard and and in a trauma-informed way. Um, And trauma-informed means that, you know, we've all been educated about, you know, the trauma response, the neurobiology behind what these individuals are experiencing and trying to limit triggers and and just create a safe environment um, to take the next steps in whatever their goal is, whether that's you know, prosecution or just accessing services, mm-hmm. or sometimes that's, you know, getting out of town and just starting over. Um, it's just understanding where they're at, meeting them where they're at, and helping them get to where they want to be. 
yeah, we have very different obligations at, at Seek Haven than other organizations do, but our, our similar missions are to, you know, prevent violence and to support victims of violence. So there's, there's definitely a lot of overlap and we all play a role um, and it's important that we learn how to work well together mm-hmm. and, and trust each other as well. I think that's a big one is trust. Um, mm. developing trust between each other in order to, you know, when, when we have to intercept each other, we're, we're, we're doing that with um, grace and patience and um, appreciation. That hasn't always been the case in the past, but I think it's something that we've been addressing um, in, in recent years because when we get along, our, our clients are best set up to achieve the goals that they that they want to achieve. Right. And like you said, like every client is different. So those needs can be different and that can vary over the different partner organizations that they need as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and sometimes that that might look like a client not wanting to participate in, in a criminal investigation, you know, if they're a victim of of a certain crime and and you know law enforcement or prosecution wants them to participate and they don't want to that's we stand with the, the, the client and sometimes that's difficult um, for other agencies but it's important that these individuals have someone that's with them and and you know we're not leaving if they make a certain decision we're still here regardless of how we really want to proceed right and, you know, Seekhaven isn't just serving the needs of Grand County. I mean, I know, I mean, this is, this is our region. Is that right? Can you talk about beyond Grand County who can access your services? Absolutely. We have um, some folks come from Green River. Um, that's pretty common. Um, we usually have a lot of people come from San Juan County as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as we all know, Moab has... A lot of work opportunities that aren't available um, in other parts of of this this corner of Utah. We typically see a, a decent amount of folks come up from the reservation, Navajo Reservation, for shelter or just services. Period. I've definitely seen a decrease since COVID, and I and I figure that's just due to lockdowns and and certain obligations that people are are placed under within their family, in their community, and their maybe not able to come up this way as easily as before. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing if that changes as um, the vaccine is more made more available in the state. Um, we do have two positions that are located in Blanding, Utah right now. And, th- and that was in part because we saw so many people coming from that region between Monticello, San Juan County, and, and again, the, the Navajo Nation. And then currently, the Gentle Iron Hawk Shelter, it's located in Blanding. There's discussion of it reopening, but it, that has yet to happen at this point. So we, we really are the only shelter in, in the counties that we serve currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward to Gentle Iron Hawk opening. I, I think that there's definitely a need and yeah, we need more beds. We need more services in the region. So I, I look forward to when that happens. Now, can you talk a little bit about, you know, this past year, um, you mentioned a, a couple of differences, but how has, you know, from March 2020 to March 2021 been different for CQ then? I think the biggest thing is that I have more gray hair. Um, 
I'm just kidding. I, it, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. Um, we've stopped taking walk-in clients, which has been a really hard sacrifice to make. Um, we do provide tele-advocacy, I like to call it. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll work with folks over the phone or email or in a, in a virtual meetings type of setting. It's not as personal. It's not, it's, it's harder to develop trust and, and build that rapport, but it's, it's what's necessary to keep ourselves and, and our community safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I really look forward to when we feel safe enough to, to open our doors um, to walking clients again. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were housing a lot of people offsite in hotel rooms to limit the transmission in the shelter. We were so lucky to have received some extra funding from the state to accommodate that. It was a very like a very limited, time limited, big grant. So we we used it, we used that money up and I, I don't regret mm-hmm. it. I think we we really did keep um, each other safe in, in, in doing that. But again, you sacrifice that in-person meetings and, and that rapport and, and just being on site at, mm-hmm. at a shelter facility. There's just so much support, more support that people can get than, than staying in a hotel room. Another thing is that we have our, our, our group sessions, our, our seeking safety sessions are also online. Um, and we haven't, I think that we've been doing them only one-on-one since the pandemic and again you lose that you lose that group component you know other sure. other people um in a, in a group setting with you I think it's really supportive to to not feeling alone in your experiences and mm-hmm. um to build trust with with a community so it sounds like some programs and services have moved into this you know teleconsultation or virtual meeting space yeah yeah. What about the past year being different as far as the need for either shelter or consultation or counseling? You know, how have you seen the need for Seek Haven services shift? Yeah, I we've definitely seen an increase in requests for shelter for emergency shelter. So yeah, definitely an increase in requests for shelter. Overall, I'd I'd say that we've just seen an increased demand for services. So individuals that you know, during a typical time, um, may have only needed counseling and minimal financial aid. We're seeing they're coming in with multiple requests for financial aid as opposed to, you know, I just I just need help with this month of rent. It's it's mm. I have many bills that I'm having a hard time keeping on top of. And honestly, I think I, I've seen some of the most traumatic cases come through our, our virtual or figurative doors mm-hmm. um, and physical doors. But we've, I, I've seen some of the yeah, most complicated um, and just really, really sad situations in, in comparison um, to my prior years here, which has had a really great impact on our staff. Mm-hmm. And that secondary trauma or vicarious trauma um, it's definitely increased among our staff and, and burnout too. Burnout's been really bad. Um, you know, it's, it's meeting in a virtual capacity is, is not only difficult for clients and not only are they missing out on, on building rapport, but it's really hard on our team as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the rewards, those emotional rewards that we might have typically are compromised. 
due mm. to how we have to operate. So um, yeah, a big concern of mine has been keeping our, our staff supported and hearing each other out and finding um, methods to just better support each other. Mm. That's a huge challenge. I mean, I know that burnout is um, common in the nonprofit world, but when you add the layer of secondary trauma and the work that you guys are doing, you know, how do you, you know, how do you support staff? We do have, we have a stipend, a monthly stipend. Our, our grant funding also, it covers primary and secondary victims of, of violence. So our, our staff automatically fall into that. So our staff, they're eligible for contracted counseling, which is something I'm really happy to provide, that's a great start. I, th- I think we, we've also just been very good about making accommodations to to folks for their schedules and just understanding where they're at. Right. Um, and I've I've never seen such a supportive group of people proactively checking in with each other um, and not necessarily relying on supervisors to do that. They I, I see. Um, direct service staff or, or the advocates or, 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 or shelter managers actively supporting each other and actively advocating for each other, which is incredible. And I think that, you know, not always having to rely on, on, on a supervisor is, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're taking these lessons that they've learned from working with their clients and applying it to each other, which is really awesome. But yeah, just really needing to be patient with ourselves and, that's been a big conversation among our team is, you know, we're all experiencing this COVID fog. We're all experiencing Mm -hmm. trauma. We're all experiencing Mm -hmm. fear and uncertainty and, you know, but what's, what's on my plate today and what's, what's going on around me today and taking a break to, to laugh and talk to each other, I think is really important too. And we, we are good at that. I'll tell you, we're very good at that. (laughs) You know, the other thing that you mentioned I wanted to ask you about, um, you you know, speaking of of trauma, you said that um, over the past year, you've seen some of the most difficult cases come to Sea Haven. Do you think that's also been influenced by the pressures of the pandemic? I I definitely think so. Whether that's, you know, pressures of the pandemic, putting... um, abusers or perpetrators of violence in, in more difficult situations. And, you know, they're, they're lashing out or they're acting out in ways that maybe they typically wouldn't. I think that that's definitely something that's going on. There's a big conversation in the field that um, mm-hmm. opportunity to practice self-care or just take, take a minute to yourself, like that's not available anymore, but especially, yeah, for, for our clients, they, they are, stuck at home um, or they weren't working or yeah the pressure the financial pressures um, it can escalate that that cycle of of violence and and just make it go faster and and as the cycle of violence you know continues it it escalates it generally escalates so in situations where there there's minor control issues it, it quickly turns into serious jealousy, um, which can turn into shoving, and then that can turn into, you know, it escalates, right? So um, that, that's something that we've, we've been seeing. But because people are in this financial predicament, 
um, it's harder to leave and it's harder to mm -hmm. relocate and it's harder to, you know, find childcare. That's been a huge one that there, there are no options for childcare at this point. There hardly were beforehand, but there definitely aren't now. So the, the focus for a lot of families has been economic maintenance as opposed to safety, emotional safety mm. and physical safety. You're seeing the, you know, focus on, like you said, economic ma maintenance over anything else. Yeah, definitely. So the pandemic has created different concerns, different issues, or um, heightened them. You know, I know CK even also has done a lot of work on prevention, prevention of violence. Mm -hmm. Is CK even still able to do that work when you're dealing with just, you know, trying to support people who have experienced violence? It's It's been hard to juggle direct client services and prevention work in this atmosphere because we, you know, we deal with crises every day, but the crises are, are more complicated, more severe nowadays. So um, sadly, it, it feels as though prevention has taken the back seat in some capacities but we've had a lot of really great wins this year with our, in our prevention department. Um, we rolled out uh, Making Proud Choices, which is an after-school program um, for adolescents. Mm -hmm. um, and we just finished our first cohort and I'm, and I'm so proud and so happy for our team. That has been a great accomplishment. And that's just working with youth and, and really focusing on, you know, what is a healthy relationship? What are what are your skills what is your what is driving you what do you want to accomplish um but also you know some very basic sex ed mm -hmm. um those are, those are all things that can help prevent early pregnancy or forcing people into relationships when they're not ready for them mm -hmm. um which is which has been correlated with domestic violence in the past so yeah, just, just really giving the tools to the next generation on, on how to enter relationships in a consensual and healthy manner. That's been, that's been huge. Um, we also have a, um, an intervention program called Families Talking Together, and that's for parents and their adolescents. So how, how do you as a parent better support and understand your, your teenager but also here are the tools to have to have those conversations because those protective factors are huge in in um, keeping someone keeping an adolescent from becoming at risk. Right, mm -hmm. having conversations with your parents leads to better grades and just more stability and you know, secondary education and, and healthy relationships. It's really amazing that um, CK even was able to, you know, put resources towards this youth programming. I know how difficult it is to get youth programming off the ground. Really to get, to get youth programming off the ground. Um, it's, it's been a big win and I'm so incredibly proud of our team. Yeah. Do you think that um, the pandemic will any way shape the future for CK Haven? Like, are there things that um, you know you want to continue doing or things that you're ready to leave behind? <laughs> our, our financial empowerment program um, has been really awesome. And the grant funding for it is actually running out in, in June, but I'm interested in finding ways to keep that program 
running with, with different funds. So part of it is, you know, you, you fulfill these five modules, these um, lessons, you know, one's on a budget, one's on building credit, things like that. And then the participants are then eligible for uh, financial aid. And, and, and that can either look like match savings or credit repair, which is a type of support that we've, you know, generally isn't allowable with um, any of the grants that we've come across. So um, it's, it's been huge and really giving a leg up. So instead of just responding to emergencies and, and saying, oh, here's a bed, here's some food, you know, and, and here we are, we're, we're being supportive. Instead, it's like, what are, the, what are the things that are actually keeping you from achieving goals? Likely it's bad credit and likely it's um, not having any money to your name. And mm-hmm. this program has been really powerful. So I'm, I'm hoping to maybe partner with some credit unions or things like that to provide the education, but then also provide that, that financial aid component to clients. I think one big lesson for us, and it's not necessarily like a program or, or a specific service that we provide to clients, but really just trying to not be martyrs mm-hmm. in this work and, and reminding ourselves that we in this field deserve to take care of ourselves and deserve to take it slow and, mm-hmm. and recognize our own um, vicarious trauma and the need to access mental health services right. for, for us as service providers. I think that's been a huge lesson for me. And I'm seeing a lot of folks on my team really forgive themselves and, and advocate for their, for their health and emotional well-being. So I, I think that's been a huge lesson is, yeah, just, just our culture and how we, how we want to operate as an agency. Yeah, that's like the long-term health of the organization, right? You know, mm-hmm. if you invest in your, your own mental health and own, you know, well-being, then you're able to do the same for your clients. Exactly. And that's, and that's been a, a motto you know, another, another unofficial um, motto or saying that we have here is making, you know, making an example of, of the relationships that our clients deserve to be in and um, setting that example for them, because if, if we're not doing it, then, then everything that we say is inauthentic. You know, if we're not living by that and we encourage our clients to do it. um, Yeah. We're just, it's, it's all a farce, you know? Mm -hmm. So, we, we really need to set that example and look at ourselves before we, we look at others and before we encourage community members to change or systems to change, we, we need to be a good example first. Now, finally, we mentioned this at the beginning, CKVIN is celebrating 30 years in the Moab community this month. Um, there's a big fundraiser happening. Can you tell us about the fundraiser? Yeah. So we've um, been around for 30 years and we asked um, some folks in town to, to sponsor this fundraiser. And between those sponsors, we raised $30,000. And now we are um, challenging the community to match that $30,000. And I'd say that we're, we're at a great start. We're actually right on track right now. And, and I sincerely hope that we stay on track. So I encourage the kids to check out our website at ckaven.org slash 
30th anniversary. Um, and you can make a contribution there. And we also have a little portal for folks to share a pearl of wisdom. Hmm. So the, the traditional gift for 30 years of marriage is a pearl. So um, we've kind of taken that symbol and, and rolled with it. I think it's a beautiful symbol for resiliency, which is something that we promote and, and support not only with ourselves as, as I've been talking about as a team, but also with our, with our clients and, and therefore our community. Anyways, a pearl of wisdom is, is a little story or um, something that community members can share about an experience that they've had with Sea Cave in. I hope to hear from, you know, previous board members and staff members. We've had a handful come from old clients talking about, you know, their experiences and what's helped them, um, you know, accomplish their goals and, and find safety and, and happiness. That's so meaningful. Yeah. And how long is, is the fundraiser? Is it, um, you know, going for a set time? Yeah, we're, we're hoping to raise that second tier of $30,000 by April 30th. So we have a little little over one more month to go, which is plenty of time in my opinion. I, I think that we have a great community. I know that some folks have actually made more money than they typically do due to, to um, stimulus packages and things like that. So, and, and something that someone told me is a lot of us aren't going on vacation. We can't go on vacation. So mm-hmm. we put our money towards a good cause. And mm-hmm. um, I know that there are folks like that in the community. And, and I strongly encourage everybody to consider making a contribution. We, we are actually facing some pretty big budget cuts um, from our, one of our biggest grants. And it's pretty terrifying. Um, but I, I'm feeling confident that we'll be able to keep our, our current staff and maintain our programming. We just might have to do it on a bit more of a skeleton budget, but we, but we need donations and, and we need to fundraise in ways that we never have before because mm. um, this is pretty unprecedented. It's going to be about, I think it's 28% over, over two years for our biggest grant. So wow. we, we need the support. And that unexpected budget um, cut was that also pandemic related? No, um, it's so it's from the Victims of Crime Act, um, and we receive about half a million dollars per year from that general pot of money, and that that pot is actually created from fees and fines for um, white collar crimes and. It actually just passed in the house, but there's a there's a VOCA fix bill that is is yeah just passed in the house, and and I look forward to seeing that change in the future. It's um it's really deciding where those fees and fines go. They mm. weren't going to VOCA, so this this bill will help fix that um, to ensure that programs like ours receive steady funding for years to come. So yeah, not COVID related. It's just a terrible timing um and yeah. and what what we as domestic violence and sexual assault service providers are referring to as a perfect storm um not only are we seeing an increased demand for services but we're seeing a very big decrease in uh federal funding which of course you know affects long-term sustainability at a time where it sounds like most providers would want to expand services Right. And we, we do want to expand. We need to expand. Um, we need more services in our community. Um, and, that's, and that's something that we're looking at right now, too, is, is how do we proceed in this climate? 
it's it's uncertain, but we have a great team. We have a great community. We have incredible supporters. I, I feel confident that we'll find a solution. Um, it just might not be as fast as, as one would hope, but we'll we'll get there. Remind us again where people can go to support Seacaven. Yeah, so at our website, seacaven.org slash 30th anniversary is the direct link. But you should check out our whole website. There's lots of good stuff on there. We've been keeping up to date on our Instagram and Facebook pages as well. Our handle is at Moab. Thanks to Abigail Taylor, the Executive Director of Seacaven Family Crisis and Resource Center. Seacaven is celebrating uh, 30 years in the community. Like Abby mentioned, uh, more information about that is available at seacaven.org. It is 5.33 on my little time clock here, and you're listening to KZMU Moab Community Radio. It's This Week in Moab. I'm your host, Molly Marcello. Uh, We're going to turn to another pre-recorded conversation today, this time with Rihanna Medina of the Moab Valley Multicultural Center. The center is celebrating Multicultural March all month long. Donations to the org are doubled. The MVMC provides crisis resource and advocacy, language and life skills support, cultural education and outreach, youth education and outreach, and interpretation and translation services. Their mission is to build bridges across language and culture through family support, community collaboration, and education. Our conversation with Rihanna starts with a reflection on how the past year has changed and really affected the center. The past year has been an incredible year of growth and innovation for the Multicultural Center. Um, The biggest change that comes to mind first is, is our food pantry. I think that it was really eye opening um, at the beginning of the pandemic, how many families in our community are experiencing food scarcity. And, um, you know, some of that had to do with the original panic of dealing with something that none of us really knew how to navigate. But we can safely say at this point, you know, late in late March of 2021, we cannot just attribute that to the panic of the pandemic. We can really talk about what food scarcity looks like in our community. And to that end, the, the center, you know, has had a very quiet food pantry for years, for close to 10 years. And it's really always been just something that we, we've had um, as part of our crisis resource and advocacy program. And uh, it was a way to, you know, when you help somebody who's struggling with whatever crisis they or their family are going through, when you can give somebody something tangible, uh, like food, it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful expression of, of love and support, I think. Um, but it's certainly grown into something we didn't know that the need was what it was. And I think that when the Grand County Food Bank had to scale back their hours and times to just two days a week or two hours each day, so just four hours a week, um, it, the need is, is greater than what our, our county's food bank is able to, to meet. And I can 
I can say that with confidence because people come to the center every day um, asking for food. So our food pantry is accessible Monday through Friday, nine to five during our regular business hours, and they can access it every two weeks. So twice a month, every box that somebody would receive has the same basic items that were chosen really carefully concentrating on nutrition and, you know, to make the most, make the dollar stretch the furthest. Our basic food box has items such as bread and peanut butter, eggs, some vegetables, and some canned meat. And it makes 25 meals uh, conservatively. And the center has also made um, an intentional decision to keep specific foods on hand for people who may not be living in a place meant for human habitation or in a situational place where they don't really have a place to cook or a home. So we always have food on hand that somebody might can eat right away or can easily heat up in like a gas station microwave if they needed to. So food bank resources, that that has changed or gotten bigger, the, the need, um, even though you said the Multicultural Center has had a quietly had a food pantry for about a decade. Um, you've seen that be more of a need this year. Absolutely. Um, if I can talk about one other thing that I think has, you asked about this last year, mm-hmm. and I think it is our, additionally, our awareness and resources for um, housing security. You know, everybody knows that Grand County is working on and has, has been working on finding more um, affordable housing in our community. And that is, that's fantastic. But I, I think that the, the center has definitely, when we started offering for a more kind of formalized program for housing and homelessness in 2019, um, we have gotten our, our referrals, self-referrals and referrals from our colleagues in the community who know that we offer these resources. So we've seen that, uh, that need people coming and asking for those resources that has grown exponentially. Um, and talking, you know, when it came to COVID, I think all said and done between our partnership with the Southeastern Utah Association of Local Governments, and then MVMC also had a private public partnership with the Grand County Housing Task Force during COVID. We did intakes for case managed and helped pass through almost $80,000 in housing relief in 2020, which is, is just, uh, I was there and I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it. It was, it was a lot of work and it was really, um, really important uh, that all of those families uh, and individuals that benefited from that were able to keep their, their housing uh, throughout such an unstable time in this with, with what's going on because as we know if you lose housing here in Moab it's really really hard to find another place to live. Mm, yeah where do you see the housing piece of um, the MVMC going you know there's a lot of obviously $80,000 that's huge when it comes to crisis response. Yeah. Um, what about the long-term um, sustainability arm of housing? You know I think that the the piece that it's really I think what's really interesting is when you start looking at 
looking at a problem, you know, it's the need will happen organically and you respond to that need. And as you're listening and doing the work, you learn so much about what that need looks like and what the intersecting um, factors are. And the, the Multicultural Center is really doing a lot of work to collaborate with our community, I'm gonna use the word stakeholders uh, that have a lot of influence and also work uh, in the housing or homeless um, services. And to that extent, we in January this year hired a VISTA specifically to work part-time both with the Multicultural Center and with the, the county. Um, so they can look at housing and homelessness, both from the NGO perspective, as well as the government perspective. So we can, she can tell us liaise between the two and really see what that looks like up close from a direct service pro provider's uh, perspective, as well as what these government entities are working on in terms of code or overlays or plans um, to add housing. And we can all work towards the, the same goal, obviously, which is to in increase housing, increase affordable housing, um, housing sustainability. And when it comes to homelessness, of course, that is making homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. And what that looks like for the future for, for me is getting better data. And the Multicultural Center is part of our local homeless coordinating committee. And we have a subcommittee called Coordinated Entry that we're working with other um, organizations here in Moab. And we have just begun, like barely just begun the work of collecting better data on people who come who are at risk for imminent risk for losing their housing or they can't find housing or they're um, actually homeless, whether that be chronic or situational, like domestic, domestic violence would be somebody is living in a shelter because there was a, a, an incident of domestic violence that would be situational. Mm -hmm. We are asking questions when we do an intake that give us information about about their housing situation. What, uh, are they an individual or a family? What is their age? Can they self-report that they have um, history or current substance use disorder, experiencing mm -hmm. domestic violence, diagnosed mental illness, so that we can have this data going forward to mm -hmm. inform the people who can make the bigger decisions about adding housing, what is the greatest need, especially when it comes to vulnerable populations? Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, it's making me think of the Moab community referral system, which the Moab Free Health Clinic is trying to get on, off the ground, which connects um, social aid agencies to medical providers. Um, all of these all of these collaborative efforts, it, it's exciting for the Moab community. Yes, I, I'm excited. Um you know, that's a, their VISTA is working on that also. AmeriCorps VISTAs have done so much for, for this community. Um, I hope that our community, anyone who's listening to this or anybody who meets an AmeriCorps VISTA member will just maybe remember to say, hey, thank you for your service because mm -hmm. these people are giving a year and getting paid very little and working really hard on some of these huge social issues. Um, and their contributions have made such a positive impact 
and you know, being in this community for 10 years, I, I, I see so much impact that that program has made. Yeah. I do want to mention that it's March and when this interview will air, it will still be March. Um, and that's important for the Multicultural Center because this is a big fundraising month. Can you tell us, you know, I've always been curious, like um, what's the story behind the March fundraiser? Yeah. <laughs> and tell us, yeah, tell us about that. I, I'd love to. So about five years ago, the Community Foundation of Utah sponsored a fundraiser called Love Utah Give Utah. It was a state it was statewide and it was a competition. And it was a competition to see specifically for crowdfunding and the idea between crowdfunding is a lot of people, you know, giving whatever little amount. It doesn't it doesn't matter what amount they gave. And so you had to have they had the competition was kind of depending on your operating budget, like small, medium and large organizations. So like MVMC wasn't competing with Planned Parenthood or somebody right. with a billion dollar budget. Right. And then how many unique donors could you get to contribute in this month? And MVMC, um, we, we really took that competition <laughs> to heart. We, during the Love Utah, Give Utah days, we worked till midnight <laughs> on the last day of that because we really wanted to place and put Moab on, on the map. And we kind of built... I, we put a lot into, into that and the community foundation of Utah, only a couple of years after, I think maybe they did it two or three years, but they stopped doing that. They stopped doing it and they put their marketing behind giving, giving Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And MBMC was like, you know what, that was like, it was just such a really important influx of funds in the first quarter for us mm -hmm. and we had a lot of fun with it and so we decided to make it our own we said we don't need it to be a statewide competition what we do want to do is name it multicultural march and try to not just yes we have a fundraising goal and that's of course really important we're a nonprofit organization but also you know it's giving everybody in the community an opportunity can, to contribute something to see what we're doing to learn what we're doing so it's just as much an awareness campaign as it is a fundraising campaign and then if you're following us on social media because you know everything has to be so virtual right now mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of cultural education that we're putting out on our, our social media right now as well so mm -hmm. hopefully people are, are learning some things about MVMC, about multiculturalism, and making a small contribution as well. And I just want to say, you know, with these funds that are raised during um, this time, are these these funds that the Multicultural Center can decide what to do with? You know, they're not like a grant where it has to go to a certain program. This is like good for the organization as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it allows us to respond to the greatest need. And because there you aren't, you know, following the specific guidelines of any grant or having to do reporting necessarily, you know, obviously we, we, we always are recording our data and making that available to people, but you're right. Unrestricted funds are just um, wonderful because we can put them to the greatest use and immediately. Right. 
Well, thank you so much for taking some time. Before we go, can you, you know, I, I always feel that the Multicultural Center is responding to all of the needs that they come across. And it almost seems like every year there's like a new staff person working on this amazing thing. You know, can you talk about future growth for the organization or, or where you've come so far just briefly? Sure. Um, you know, the, the center, of course, started as an immigrant resource center. And I think that in that, we learned a lot about cultural sensitivity and cultural humility. And we have been able to really open that up and apply that to a lot of different vulnerable populations, whether that be, you know, somebody who is experiencing substance use disorder or homelessness or domestic violence or legal problems, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that there is a community resource that people feel welcome and safe mm -hmm. and has a, a really kind of diverse knowledge of, of different resources. And that's what MBMC has gotten really good at. I think that we will continue to try to have a seat at the table in many different sectors of the community so that we can we can always kind of be flexible and respond to needs as they ebb and flow. And, you know, we we're really into safety, health, wellness, you know, diversity, all of those things. Concentrating on that allows us to make this community a safe place and a healthier place for, for everybody. And I really feel like the center is a place that has something for, for everyone. So with, with that too, I, you know, we, we also promise to be a values and a data-driven organization always. So going forward, we will prioritize our human and financial resources based on our values and what the data show are the most important needs. And we will listen to the, the community too when they, when they say, that something is important. All right. Thank you. That's Rihanna Medina of the Moab Valley Multicultural Center. Thank you to my guest, uh, Rihanna, and to Abby from Sea Haven, uh, both for telling us about the critical resources those organizations provide to our region. Just a note about the Multicultural Center, um, they are celebrating Multicultural March all month long. Donations to the organization are doubled. If you'd like to hear these conversations again, um, if you missed something um, and wanted to replay it, you can go to our website right now, kzmu.org, and click on our program schedule. You're, you'll find that all of our archives of any show um, are up for two weeks. Or for public affairs, you can wait till Friday. That's when I post our, our conversations to our website in perpetuity. Public Affairs is now a podcast as well. So if you want to make sure you hear these conversations uh, from This Week in Moab, which is this show, to other programs like Radio Book Club, Great Wide Open, Thought for Food, and Art Talks, you can subscribe to Public Affairs on KZMU on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.